0: Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash HVF. This activity is supported by an educational grant from GSK Limited. Welcome to this Peer Voice panel discussion on lupus. This activity comprises three presentations featuring a panel of experts at any time during this presentation. You may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues.
1: Hello, I'm Ronald van Vollenhoven from the Amsterdam University Medical Centers in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. And welcome to this activity on improving outcomes for patients with systemic lupus erythematosus. Joining me here today in this discussion are my colleagues, Richard Cervera from the Hospital Clinic Barcelona in Spain, and Daphna Gladman from the University of Toronto, Canada. Welcome, Ricard and Daphna. In this first presentation, we will review how we are doing for our patients with SLE and what is still needed. We will see that there is still quite a large unmet need and we will discuss some of the tools that will be able to enable us to give better help to our patients in the future. So SLE or lupus, We all know it as the autoimmune disease that can affect very many different organs, cause a variety of symptoms and signs that is associated with many features of autoimmunity that can be expressed as autoantibodies. And what is very important to the patient is unfortunately it has an unpredictable course. The patient lives with the knowledge that the disease can flare up without any clear reason and may fortunately for the patient also recede into the background at other times. But this disease, because of its own manifestations but also the treatments, is associated with a very significant negative impact on quality of life. It limits functions, the activities of daily life are impaired, the disease is associated with damage due to the disease and its treatment. there is still mortality associated with this disease. Patients do die from the disease itself. Fortunately, that is uncommon, but also as the long-term consequences of the disease unfold, there is an increase in mortality. Now, as mentioned, the disease course is variable. In some patients, it's clear that they have this rumbling disease with flares, In other patients, there is a big flare. And then after that, they're doing very well for a long period of time. This is a very good thing. Unfortunately, it does not happen very often. We cannot promise that to the patient. And then there is the patient who has a very significant ongoing continuous disease activity, which of course requires medical intervention. But with all these disease patterns, it's also clear that it's the inflammation that goes up and down but as the inflammation goes up and down, there's more and more damage. So if you think about it, as a graph the one is up and down and the other is just always up. The damage keeps on increasing with time. So, Ricard, can you please tell us a little bit more about uh, the causes of lupus? Why does this inflammation develop?
2: Well, uh, actually, there is not a single cause of, of lupus. Uh, lupus is a multifactorial uh, disease. Uh, involving f- many factors such as uh, genetic factors, environmental factors, such as uh, ultraviolet radiation, uh, smoking, drugs, viruses, hormones such as estrogens, epigenetic factors. All these uh, involve the innate and adaptive immune systems that uh, lead to the production of a myriad of autoantibodies, immune complexes, auto-reactive T-cells, pro-inflammatory cytokines that produces inflammation in any organ of the body, in the kidneys, in the skin, in the lungs, the brain, the heart, the joints, and they eventually can lead to organ damage.
1: Thank you, Ricard. And Daphna, can you please tell us more about how this damage occurs in patients with lupus and what is the effect of the lupus and the treatments and the comorbidities on organ damage.
0: So the organ the damage in lupus occurs for a number of reasons. Their disease activity may lead to organ damage. For example, nephritis may lead to renal failure, which may require dialysis or transplantation. Myocarditis may lead to heart failure. Arthritis may lead to deformities. On the other hand, the treatment that is so helpful to our patients may also cause damage in the long run. So steroids, as we all know, cause cataracts, myopathy, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, osteonecrosis, and cyclophosphamide, for example, leads to infertility. At the same time, if in the course of lupus disease, there is surgery, for example, It is thought that that causes damage in and out of itself, because in the context of disease uh, process, it's just another insult. We can see that the damage occurs over time. So the figure on the left shows you that damage accrues over time, so that by the time 15 years go by, a large number of patients have accumulated damage. The figure on the right demonstrates the areas that are damaged most commonly. And musculoskeletal is the most common, followed by cataracts or the ocular, uh, cardiovascular disease, etc.
1: So, Daphna, you're pointing out how the inflammation can be get damaged, but also the treatments are associated with the risk for damage. And this could be quite bewildering to the clinician who wants to keep a good record of everything that's happening, who wants to make it... uh, you know, quantifiable. Can you tell us something more about the measurements that we have for these different disease aspects?
0: So it's a good idea to actually measure the disease activity and we can see its progress over time. Sometimes it goes up, unfortunately, but we hope that with our treatment, it goes down. And we have a number of instruments to measure disease activity, including the SLE disease activity index or SLEDAI and its um, modification, the Selena slidae and the slidae 2K. We have the British Isles Lupus Activity Group or the Bilag index. We have many other indices that are less commonly used, but nonetheless reflect measurement of disease activity. In terms of damage, at the moment, we only have one instrument called the SLIC or Systemic Lupus International Collaborating Clinics ACR, American College of Rheumatology, Damage Index, or SDI, which is the most common measure to, uh, to assess the accrual of damage. Yeah, so Daphna, do you think these instruments can be used in practice? There is no doubt that the SLIDE can be used in practice. It's a single document, and if you assess the patient, it takes a couple of seconds to complete the instruments. In other words, you have to assess the patient, you have to clinically evaluate them, get a history, do a physical, get lab tests. Once you've done that, which you need for your clinical care, it's not that difficult to complete an instrument. And likewise, for the the damage index, there's no point doing a damage index more often than once a year, but it's so easy to make sure that you keep that information if a patient has had a heart attack, if they've had uh, a cataract, if they've had surgery, if they've developed uh, osteonecrosis, and you just measure it. And you can see that there is an effect of disease activity on organ damage that you can actually demonstrate in a statistical analysis. This slide, showing uh, figures A, B, and C, demonstrates the damage progression by the slid A2K, in other words by disease activity, and you can see that people that have a higher disease activity have a higher accumulation of damage. Patients who are taking a higher dose of steroids are more likely to accrue more damage, and damage who had already and people that had already had damage at baseline are more likely to develop more damage. In other words, damage accrues damage.
1: Yeah, it's very clear, isn't it? And I agree with your comment that these, actually these instruments can be used in practice. It it takes little getting used to, but I don't think it's uh, something that we shouldn't uh, aim for when in practice, we also want to make it more quantifiable. Thank you, Daphne. So, um, Ricard, you and I were working closely together on the development of a good uh, international definition of remission in lupus. Now, uh, can you please tell us uh, what the definition ended up looking like and also a little bit about why we even wanted to do that?
2: Well, uh, actually, the the, the story started a little bit earlier when we also uh, developed the treat-to-target strategy in in lupus. The number one recommendation of this treat-to-target strategy was the treatment target of lupus should be remission of systemic symptoms and organ manifestations or, where remission cannot be reached, the lowest possible disease activity. But we realized that at that moment we uh, didn't have uh, definitions for remission or low disease activity. So this is the reason that we uh, developed the uh, DORIS uh, group in order to uh, define what uh, is remission in lupus. And uh, at the end of the day, this was the final DORIS definition of remission. It includes uh, a clinical sled ice uh, equal to zero, a physician global assessment uh, lower than 0.5 in a scale that goes from zero to three, irrespective of serology and the patient may be on antimalarials, low-dose glucocorticoids, that means uh, prednisolone or equivalent uh, dose of uh, equal or less than 5 mg day, and or stable immunosuppressive uh, drugs, including biologics. On the other side, uh, low disease activity was uh, also uh, developed the definition by uh, two groups, the lupus low disease activity score definition by the Asia-Pacific Lupus Collaboration that includes an Sledite 2K equal or lower than four with uh, no activity in major organ systems such as the renal, CNS, cardiopulmonary, vasculitis, fever and no hemolytic anemia or gastrointestinal activity, no new features of lupus disease activity compared with the previous assessment, the physician global assessment uh, should be uh, equal or lower than one, and the uh, current prednisolone or equivalent dose should be equal or lower than 7.5 mg day, with well tolerated standard maintenance dose of immunosuppressive drugs and approved biological agents, excluding investigational drugs. On the other side, the uh, Toronto Lupus Group also developed a low disease activity uh, definition that includes an uh, SLEDI 2K, excluding serology lower than 3, including only one clinical manifestation of rash, alopecia, mucosal ulcers, pleurisy, pericarditis, fever, thrombocytopenia, or leukopenia. The patient should be on no prednisone or immunosuppressive drugs, can be with or without antimalarials. Remission was defined by this group as no clinical manifestation from taking antimalarials alone.
1: Thank you, Ricard. So clearly we have some useful definitions and what is very impressive to me is that there is now a lot of data that shows that the patient in remission or even low disease activity ends up having much less damage than the patient who cannot achieve that. And of course, the other side of that coin is that glucocorticoids, especially if prednisone is given at 7.5 milligram or higher, will actually incur more damage with time. And the final point that I always like to make is that if somebody has damage, that by itself also increases the risk for further damage. So in summary, Um, Despite advances in our therapeutic options, lupus is still associated with reduced quality of life, long-term organ damage, and even mortality. And we are now in a position where we can measure the disease and we can establish quantitatively what the inflammation is and the damage. And we also now have definitions for the good things that we want for our patients, the low disease activity and the remission. And that is together a great set of tools that we can use as clinicians to try to help our patients achieve a better prognosis. And so I hope that you will join us again for the next program where we will discuss the possibilities of using therapeutics to achieve these better outcomes for our patients. And for now, I thank Daphne Gladman and Ricard Severa, and I thank you for your attention, bye-bye. Hello and welcome, I'm Ronald van Vollenhoven from the Amsterdam University Medical Centers in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Welcome to this activity on how to achieve clinical remission in patients with systemic lupus erythematosus. Joining me here today for this discussion are my colleagues, Dr. Ricard Cervera from the hospital clinic in Barcelona, Spain, and Dr. Daphna Gladman from the University of Toronto, Canada. Welcome, Ricard and Daphna. In this second presentation, we will review why it is difficult to achieve remission, what are the benefits and limitations of available treatments, and we will discuss the updated recommendations as well as the role of biological therapies. Now, what do we want to achieve in patients with systemic lupus erythematosus? Well, obviously we want the patient to survive, and we have already established in many studies that the mortality of lupus that is associated with the disease and the treatment is still increased compared to the healthy population. We want to prevent organ damage. We would like to do all this with as little drug side effects as possible. And so in the end, we want to achieve an optimal quality of life for our patients. And so in reality what you aim for in the patient with lupus is remission where there's no disease or maybe you aim for low disease activity if you feel that a remission is just not really realistic for your patient at that point in time and you would like to prevent flares because flares are very disruptive to the patient and a real source of anguish and also of actual damage and all of this with the least amount of glucocorticoids But I would like to start by asking this question of you, Daphna, why is it so difficult to achieve remission in
0: systemic lupus erythematosus? So it's a variable disease, variable course and prognosis is in general, but the definition of remission is still debatable. The disease heterogeneity and and multi-system involvement makes that definition most difficult there's incomplete understanding of the pathophysiology of the disease, and possibly because we don't quite understand the pathophysiology, there seems to be a lack of synchronization of involvement and timing of response in different organs. There's also a differential response to treatment, both in different organs and in different patients, and, possibly related to different geographic areas, genetic uh, factors, uh, environmental factors, and there is um, a lack of a uniform biomarker that can actually identify for us both the diagnosis and the response to treatment. And so lots of work to be done. Absolutely. And so, Ricard,
1: we do treat patients, of course, based on our own, uh, you know, qualities as doctors, but we also have recommendations from various organizations. And the ones that I think you and I are perhaps most familiar with uh, working in Europe are those by EULAR. Can you tell us something about the EULAR recommendations for the treatment of lupus?
2: Yes, uh, we uh, recently at the EULAR task force on on lupus updated the recommendations for the treatment of of patients with SLE and uh, we stratified uh, the the, the severity of the lupus patients into mild and moderate and, and severe. And we propose a a simple algorithm with uh, first-line therapies and uh, treatment for refractory cases in all these three groups. And always the first important issue is all patients should be on hydroxychloroquine, unless uh, it is contraindicated. And the second uh, drug usually is uh, glucocorticoids, uh, the lowest uh, dose that is uh, necessary. And then, depending on the organs, for uh, refractory cases and moderate and severe, we use immunosuppressive drugs such as uh, methotrexate, isothioprine, calcineurine inhibitors, uh, mycophenolate, cyclophosphamide, And then uh, the biologicals. The biological therapies, Belimumab, according to these uh, algorithms, are the third uh, therapy for moderate uh, uh, cases refractory to the previous therapies. And on the other side, uh, rituximab is uh, recommended for uh, severe cases refractory to the previous therapies and very important uh, don't forget adjunct therapies such as uh, sun protection vaccination exercise avoiding smoking uh, body weight blood pressure lipid glucose control antiplatelets or anticoagulants in the case of uh, antiphospholipid antibody positive patients and what is important is that with these therapies uh, the, the aim is to Target at remission, uh, considering an Sledi equal to zero, on hydroxychloroquine, but uh, no glucocorticoids according to these recommendations. Or if it is not possible, at least to low disease activity, that it's considered an Sledi uh, equal or lower than four. Patients, but patients can be on hydroxychloroquine and prednisone in a dose uh, equal or lower than 7.5, and immunosuppressive in a stable doses if they are well tolerated.
1: Thank you, Ricard. It's very clear and uh, I think you and all others uh, can be very pleased with these recommendations that give us a good outline of how to approach this disease in the individual patient. But of course, uh, this is now 2022, and we are in the era of biological therapies in rheumatology and in generally in medicine, and there are biologicals for systemic lupus erythematosus. What can we say about the use of biologicals in lupus? Uh, Daphna, you want to say something about that?
0: Yeah. In fact, one wonders if we're seeing so much damage from some of the other medications where some of the biologics actually wouldn't have a role a little earlier on so that we can avoid high doses of steroids and cyclophosphamide um, to our for our patients. The other thing that needs to be said is although the only biologics that are included in the ULAR recommendations were belimumab and rituximab. There may be others that are coming, such as anifrolumab, which might actually be very effective f- for our patients. So I think we need to have a paradigm shift where we wanna turn off the inflammation so that we can prevent damage and improve and maintain a good quality of life. I couldn't agree with you
1: more, that is what we, we would try to achieve and I think biologicals can play a very important role. The one that has been uh, approved is belimumab, and of course it was the first approved biological for lupus and it was approved for patients who had active disease despite the conventional therapies. I think we all have gotten to learn to use it. It is uh, certainly a consideration with a patient who has persistent disease. Even the high disease activity prednisone dose that you just can't get lower, and there is evidence that there may be a, um, you know, benefit all through the corticosteroid sparing aspects of this treatment. Um, serological activity was actually pointed out quite a number of years ago in an analysis that if you had anti-dNA and low complement, the likelihood of benefit from belimumab was greater and of course it has been used in patients with a variety of lupus manifestations including mucocutaneous musculoskeletal and others so that is a clear role for bulimumab but that is a drug that is already been around and so we are also getting more real life data and Daphna I believe you had a recent publication
0: on real life data with bulimumab can you tell us about that? So in this study, patients who were included in the BLIS study, which was the Belimumab uh, long-term extension study, were propensity score matched with individuals followed in the Toronto cohort that were treated with standard of care. And as we can see, the accumulation of damage in patients treated with Belimumab is much lower than that in the standard of care uh, group, suggesting that Belimumab prevents the accrual of damage, which is something that is very important for us in addition to controlling disease activity.
1: And so it wasn't a randomized trial, but the, this propensity matching, Correct. it actually ensures that the patient populations are, are comparable, right? Correct. Yeah, that's great. And then there was, in fact, another recent presentation also about bulimium, which was presented at um, an International Congress and it was about a new study that uh, looked at treatment with bulimumab but in combination with another biological. And so if you, if you looked at the results of this study, there were three groups. They were all given bulimumab and so all three groups had an improvement. But there was this one group that was given one single dose of rituximab as well at the beginning of the treatment. And interestingly, if you look at the curves in the graph that was presented at this Congress, the best result, the lowest line, was in the combination arm, but it wasn't statistically significant. So the the trial didn't completely settle the matter, but there is a suggestion that there may be innovative ways of using biologicals for lupus that may yet give us better results in the future. Now, it was already alluded to by, by Dr. Gladman that There is a new biological, recently approved uh, anifrolumab. Ricard, can you tell us about that?
2: Yes, uh, we have now an anti-interferon alpha, which is uh, anifrolumab that has just been approved in the European Union as an add-on therapy for the treatment of adult uh, patients with uh, moderate to severe active autoantibody positive lupus, despite uh, receiving a standard therapy. It is very interesting uh, to show in this slide the results from the uh, 2 lip 2 trial that lead to the approval of this uh, drug. Uh, you can see that the percentage of patients who had a, a BICLA response was 47.8% in the anifrolumab group as compared with uh, 31.5% in the placebo group. And this uh, difference, uh, 16.3 percentage points, uh, gives certainly statistically significant.
1: And Ricard, for those who are not so familiar with lupus trials, what do we think? Is that a meaningful difference?
2: We think that really this will be of clinical uh, relevance. This is uh, certainly a concept that in many cases is just uh, uh, subjective, but uh, we believe that uh, this uh, difference will be of clinical uh, relevance.
1: Yeah, it's certainly very exciting that there is a new treatment with a different mechanism of action. So I think for the patients, this can only be good news. And of course, as doctors, we'll have to learn you know, for which patient do we choose which treatment? When is it best to intervene with these biologicals? And we have to balance the benefits with, of course, with all treatments, there's always some risks. And um, so we'll learn more about this in the future. But another question that comes up is, well, with, with more and more treatments available, how are you going to choose what is your strategy for treatment? And maybe I can share a few ideas about that. It's uh, the treating to target approach. Uh, that has interested many of us in recent years. Treating to target means you think about your patient. What would you like to achieve? Is it remission? Is it the absence of flares? Is it a low dosage of glucocorticoids? And then you take a step or several steps to try to achieve it. So you do something. And that's all pretty standard. But then the, the more important part is that you then also check back with your patient after a suitable interval, three months, six months, whatever it is, And then if you did not achieve the target, you have to go back and say, what else can I do? What more can I do? And that last step is what maybe doesn't happen automatically. That's why treating to target has to somehow be made part of our practice, because that going back and say, oh, did I achieve the result that I had set as a target? And if I didn't do it, what else can I try to accomplish it? And the hope that many of us have, which has not been proven, but the hope is that by treating the target, the overall level of inflammation will be reduced. There will be less inflammation, fewer flares, and this will also lead to less damage. So it will have the long-term benefit as well, because we can maybe spare the damage with better control, also using the treatments as they become available we will actually be able to prevent some of the damage that is still occurring. So with that, I would just want to close off this, uh, this discussion with the fact that lupus is still having its fair share, unfair share for the patient of consequences for the long-term damage and a decreased quality of life, and organ damage especially, and it is even associated with mortality, but certainly also with very big losses in terms of health-related quality of life. And remission, where the disease is fully under control, is, of course, a highly desirable target. But it may not be realistic to always achieve it, and low low disease activity is also quite good. And glucocorticoids do come with a price. So if we use other treatments more judiciously, perhaps we can avoid the damage from the glucocorticoids. And in the last segment, I was saying if we maybe use the treat-to-target approach, then hopefully it will be possible to get better results for more and more of our patients. So thank you very much for being part of this program. I'm looking forward to seeing you again next time. Hello, I'm Ronald van Vollenhoven from Amsterdam University Medical Centers in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Welcome to this activity on getting systemic lupus erythematosus into clinical remission as early as possible illustrated with cases from practice. And joining me here today in this discussion are my colleagues, Dr. Ricard Cervera from the hospital clinic in Barcelona in Spain and Dr. Daphna Gladman from the University of Toronto in Canada. Welcome, Ricard and Daphna. So today we will be hearing three different cases. And the first of these cases, which are actual patients from our practices, will be presented by Dr. Daphna Gladman. Daphna, go ahead.
0: So this is a 26-year-old woman who presented initially at age 18 with fever, shortness of breath, hair loss, active arthritis, pericardial effusion, and alopecia, as well as a number of laboratory abnormalities. She was initially treated with prednisone 40 mg a day, hydroxychloroquine 400 mg a day, and was started on methotrexate. A couple of years later, she stopped the methotrexate, continuing on 20 mg of prednisone and hydroxychloroquine. At age 21, she had a flare-up with recurrent pericarditis, pleural effusions, fever, and a number of other clinical features. And the prednisone was increased, and azathioprine was added, but caused cholelestasis. So she had to be stopped and was referred to our clinic in 2017 with active arthritis, alopecia, fatigue, recurrent oral and nasal ulcers, pericardial chest pain with no rush, on 40 milligrams of prednisone, hydroxychloroquine, and clearly had active lupus, despite these medications. We had asked her to start mycophenolate, increase it from one to two to four tablets, but she didn't do it. Eventually, she started taking two grams a day with a reduction in uh, in her clinical symptoms, but she still complained of poor sleep, joint pain, headaches, numbness in the fingers, Uh, despite taking prednisone, MMF, and hydroxychloroquine. And then despite medical advice, she got pregnant, had to stop the MMF, and actually had an abortion, but despite that, developed vasculitic skin lesions, and um, elevated anti-DNA, and she also had osteoporosis by that point. She's 22 years old. On 40 milligrams of prednisone, she had difficulty with the MMF again and we started her on bulimumab. She did amazingly well on belimumab, and then decided to stop it. We tried to restart it, she wouldn't continue. And now she presents again with uh, vasculitis on 20 milligrams of prednisone, two grams of MMF and hydroxychloroquine and increase the MMF didn't do anything adding methotrexate didn't do anything, and currently she's waiting for rituximab.
1: Certainly sounds like an incredibly challenging case, Staphna, and I don't know if Ricard Severa, if you have a comment on it. My, my question would be, is the, uh, the patient's determination not to take certain medications, is it, a, is it specific to the medications, or is this patient also in general somewhat aversive to medications?
0: Well, you know, one of the biggest issues we have with our patients with lupus is non-compliance. So you can see that there is a thread right through her history that she doesn't usually do what she's supposed to do. She decides to stop, but she didn't like getting a needle every week. And even though we said, okay, we'll give it to you as an infusion once a month, oh, that was worse. So now she's going to get rituximab twice, two weeks apart. And may not need to get it for six months, she can live with that
1: Our second case will be presented by Dr. Ricard Severa. Ricard, go ahead.
2: Yes, this is uh, the case of a 13 years old female patient that uh, was uh, initially uh, diagnosed as having cutaneous lupus. Because of uh, erythematous discoid lesions on the cheek, photosensitivity, alopecia, occasional episodes of uncomplicated uh, digital ulcers. She presented with positive antinuclear antibodies, and dermatologists at the time treated the, the patient with topical glucocorticoids and photoprotection. In the last uh, month, uh, the patient uh, started with low-grade fever, malaise, nausea, dry cough, and then in the past week, uh, malar rash, non-specific uh, abdominal pain that uh, led to add uh, hydroxychloroquine just 200 mg a day and low-dose prednisone, 5 mg a day and just uh, 72 hours before being admitted at the hospital, she presented with diplopia dysphagia and right facial brachial hypostasia. The general physical examination at the emergency room disclosed malar rash, ischemic ulcers on the tips of the fingers and toes, but the neurological examination also found paresis of the right external oculomotor nerve and deviation of the tongue to the left the remaining cranial nerves were normal and segmental hypostasia of C2 to C5 with preserved strength in the upper and lower extremities. The lab uh, results uh, show mild thrombocytopenia, slightly low leukocyte count, prolonged activated par- partial thromboplastin time, increased ery- erythro-sedimentation rate with normal C-reactive proteins, low complement levels, high anti-DNA antibodies, high anti-phospholipid antibody levels and the imaging techniques show on one side a normal brain CT but the MRI disclosed intramedullary uh, inflammatory lesions. You can see the MRI uh, imaging that lead to the diagnosis of transverse myelitis. At this moment, Aggressive uh, therapy was uh, started with intravenous pulses of methylprednisolone, one gram day per three days, followed by uh, prenisolone uh, 60 mg a day, also a first pulse of uh, cyclophosphamide and anticoagulation with low molecular weight heparin. Uh, Initially, she responded, but there was a clinical relapse a week after the second pulse of cyclophosphamide with uh, electrical sensation along the back and in the lower limbs due to the postural mobilization of the head, what we uh, know as Lermit sign. Also, there were the residual lesions in the fingertips and we managed to see new intramedullary inflammatory lesions in the MRI. So, at this point, we decided to start... Also, even a more aggressive therapy that include the combination of intravenous pulses of methylprednisolone, again, one gram day per three days, plasma changes, plus intravenous immunoglobulins, plus rituximab, a strong, strong uh, therapeutic protocol that we use in cases with severe, life-threatening autoimmune manifestations. This was certainly a case that required to uh, escalate, to increase the therapies in order to control disease activity and prevent the uh, damage in the central nervous system.
1: It certainly sounds like a very challenging case for the clinicians. Um, How is the patient doing now, Ricard?
2: Fortunately, is doing well. So that's important to try to control the disease when there is a high disease activity, even a life-threatening situation, in order to avoid damage that could remain. And uh, this was fortunately not the case. We managed to control and avoid this neurological damage.
1: Well, I think we're all very glad to um, to hear that. So our third and final patient is a young woman who has already been diagnosed with, uh, with lupus many years ago, but with a twist. So when she was a teenager, she noticed that she was exquisitely sensitive to sunlight. She would go to the beach with her friends and they would be in the sun and she couldn't stand it and would actually get systemically ill with fever and general symptoms after that. And then at age 19, uh, for some non-specific symptoms, an ANA test was positive and a physician diagnosed her as having incomplete lupus, and started her on hydroxychloroquine. Uh, For a few years that was fine, but then at age 23 she actually developed what was quite clearly a very significant flare of lupus with arthritis, with pleurisy, general systemic inflammation with fever. She was of course treated with prednisone. It was started at a moderate to high dose and then tapered. And that did work well for a while, but then of course when she started to taper there was a relapse. And uh, the labs were all very consistent with lupus. She had the ANA antibodies, ENA antibodies with anti-RNP, also anti-nucleosome. Her C3 was normal, but the C4 was low. And because the first attempt to taper, the, the corticosteroids, was unsuccessful, she was started on methotrexate. That didn't seem to go very well. She was really not able to tolerate it very well, gastrointestinal discomfort and side effects. Azathioprine she could tolerate, and so she was on that for a while. But for the years that followed, um, things didn't go so well with her. She kept on having arthralgias and sometimes arthritis. And this is now despite the hydroxychloroquine and the azathioprine, she ended up having to get prednisone almost all the time and it would be increased and then she would be a bit better and then it would be decreased and she would be worse again. And so, as you might expect, at some point she was also starting to get the Cushingoid side effects. And when she was 26 years old, she came to our clinic for a new evaluation. And what actually was noticed then was that she also had some proteinuria. You know, we had actually been telling her all along that it was of course very difficult with the arthritis and that she had these other symptoms, but that we could all be happy that she didn't have nephritis. Well, at this point she started having proteinuria and even a little bit of erythrocyturia, and so that didn't look so good it wasn't at a very high level it seemed to us a little bit too little to do a kidney biopsy but it did give us some pause and also for the first time i think she had the positive anti-double stranded dna which she hadn't had before that so for this patient it seemed that the conventional treatment really was not working it wasn't controlling the disease sufficiently she was ending up having to take much too much glucocorticoids with side effects and there was even the feeling that she might be developing nephritis and that was not confirmed but it meant that we felt that something else had to be done and so she was started on belimumab. and for her we chose the weekly subcutaneous injections for reasons of convenience and with that she was also instructed to try to see if at some point if she was feeling better and doing better she could also lower the prednisone. And that is actually what happened. So after a number of months, she was able to lower the prednisone dose to five milligram every other day, which is already very good. And even after an additional number of months, she was able to stop the prednisone altogether. She did continue with the other classical immunosuppressants with the hydroxychloroquine and the azathioprine. But this was a success story because this patient who has now been treated with bilimumab for two years has been off the prednisone for one and a half years. She does still take the hydroxychloroquine and she also still takes the azathioprine. So she is on three medications. We did lower the dosage of the azathioprine to spare her a little bit of the bone marrow suppression. She has really not had arthritis now for a long time. She does have a little bit of arthralgias, no more episodes of pleurisy. And the urinalysis has become normal, except there's still a little bit of proteinuria. We still don't think it's necessary to do a biopsy. There may be very low level, but it's certainly also gotten better. And the antibodies are still there, except the anti-DNA is not detectable now. And the C4 is persistently low, which we feel maybe also could be genetic. So we have heard three cases, all three very complex patients, patients who did not do very well for some time and were in real trouble, and where the outlook was not necessarily so good. The patient in Toronto is now getting treatment and hopefully this will actually be a turning point. There was a big issue in her case also with the tolerability, but also the degree to which the patient was willing to follow recommendations. Um, And that's uh, certainly something that can happen. The patient in Barcelona with a very severe disease course, including CNS, did actually end up doing well. So we were happy to hear that. And the final patient with a very rocky course, but then having finally been stabilized on the combination of traditional immunosuppressants and modern biological therapy for systemic lupus erythematosus. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for your attention. And I wish you all the best in your practice. Thank you.
0: This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.